You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Stephen Kotler is the master of flow. This state you get into when you're doing something you love and you're focused on it and your brain kicks in an enormous amount of dopamine and suddenly you're at five times the level of performance. So I called Steven because I'm starting to play in chess tournaments again and Steven's worked with athletes and all sorts of sports that require flow. A lot of uh, computer programmers also require flow, but I wanted to kick in my flow state while playing chess. So I asked him, what's the best and fastest ways to get into the flow state so I could be at optimal performance? And he gives me his answers. I want to talk about flow and I have a very specific reason why I wanted to talk to you specifically, Stephen, about flow and getting the flow experience. I need help with something. But before that, we were just talking and I feel like there's a rise in not any one particular problem, but in just global stupidity. I feel people are getting more stupid. And I don't mean that in like IQ level or math skills or what, just like in critical thinking and decision-making and relationships, like people's emotional quotient, social quotient, whatever have, has gone way down. What, what do you think and why? So, I mean, you're talking to an introvert who likes animals more than people. Some of my best friends are trees. You know, <laughs> I, I'm biased in this. And um, I sort of, you know, with, with people I've always thought, like I have a very simple bar, which is, is the world a better place with you in it or out of it? Like that's my bar. And when I look at what's going on with climate change, when I look at what's going on with environmental devastation, when I look at what's going on with biodiversity and things like that, huge problems that need giant cooperative solutions um, and, uh, you know, that seem to be getting worse. You know what I mean? Like all of the West is on fire. All of the East is underwater. How much, like, how much longer are, are, are we, are we going to, like, not address you know, what's in our backyard or front yard at this point, that kind of, I mean, so if you're talking about that level of stupidity, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of shocking and glaring to me. And what, what I find frustrating in a sense is, you know, Peter and I have written a, a number of books about how you can harness disruptive technology to tackle grand global challenges. And we saw phenomenal examples of this during COVID, right? We got to vaccines 
years and years and years and years faster and so much more cheaper than ever before in history. It was a miracle what happened. And it was cooperation at a global scale. And it took, it either takes like a war or a plague to do that. And that's so like, okay, well, that's stupid. The whole world is currently, you know, facing massive environmental challenges that, you know, I think is as significant as a war or a plague. And, you know, I'd like to see that level of response. And until I do, I'm going to continue to agree with you that, yeah, there's a rash of stupidity going on. Yeah. And I'm, but I'm wondering, like, you, you know, what gives me optimism on, on kind of the scientific issues and let's call climate change a scientific issue. Honestly, your book with Peter Diamandis, Abundance, alongside of Matt Ridley's book, The Rational Optimist, which you which you guys refer to in the book, those two books give me the most optimism when it comes to kind of global problems. Now, is that optimism justified? Because those books sort of make the assumption that society rises to the challenge, just like it did with COVID, society rises to the challenge, sometimes at the last minute, but there's optimi- there's a healthy dose of optimism that they'll they'll do it again, at least that's what I, I think. And I agree with you. And I, you know, in the not, I mean, and the great, you know, Peter and I are, are talking about uh, doing a sort of a follow-up to abundance to those very ideas, because if you look at all the metrics that we were pointing at in abundance, whether it's, you know, the end of poverty, you know, lowering rates of child mortality, increasing rates of literacy, freedom, on and on, all those metrics, every one of them is still trending significantly upward. And they always have been, I mean, for the past hundred years. Yeah, exactly. They have been for the past hundred years. Yeah. And they're still, you know, significantly trending upward. None of the things in abundance are not true. They're all actually more true today than when we wrote the book. What I don't think Peter and I looked at closely enough, and there's reason for optimism and pessimism here, is that it's one thing to have the technologies to solve the challenges. It's another thing to be able to tackle this at a systemic level where these technologies are linked together at a citywide level, at a statewide level, at a nationwide level, at a global level. The systems of cooperation that allow these technologies to work together, that allow us to solve great challenges, mostly the fastest we've learned how to cooperate as a species, unless there's war or plague, is capitalism. Right. That's the that's the fastest we've really sort of figured out how do you cooperate as a whole species. And we're facing challenges that are moving a lot faster than capitalism can move at this point. And that's our best new business models or whatever, but that's our best solution for cooperation, especially at a global level at this at this point. Um, and it's it's not moving fast enough, it's not cooperative enough, it's not getting it done. So those are the like now what's interesting is those problems weren't as visible 20 years ago or even, you know, with 2011 right. when Peter and I- Right, because they're exponentially growing problems. They're exponential. And so they're much clearer now. I don't think I, we could have articulated that in 2011. We, I, we started to poke at it in Faster, our most recent book. Um, but, right, so this is, you know, this is sort of evolving and it's certainly some of the infrastructure. Blockchain allows cooperation at a global scale in a new way. We have to get the blockchain off of- it can't tax energy the way it does currently. And and I feel like, I feel like those changes, see, I think those are changes that are going to happen, but like, you know, the the East coast going underwater, the West coast going on fire. I don't know what solves those, but I, again, because of your books, I always assume the conversation will happen 
in capitalism or in technology or whatever. But what worries me is, is related is that maybe the conversation won't happen because our ability to have dialogue at every level has, has broken down. Like, and I'm not even talking about, oh, people arguing 24 hours a day on Twitter. Then the government is arguing about what should be on Twitter. The CEO of Twitter is arguing about what should be on Twitter. And that happens on all the kind of ways we have this huge public discourse now, which is all on social media. All of that is broken down and nobody trusts the news. Nobody trusts anybody anymore. Everybody's assumed to have a financial motive or, or else, you know, they're, and so they're lying all the time. Furthermore, everything then breaks down even more like, oh, if my brother likes Trump or my brother likes Biden, or if he's a libertarian, I'm not going to talk to him anymore. Like, so everything just breaks down. It's not like, hey, let's have a dialogue. It just breaks. And that seems stupid to me. There is. So I agree with you. You're not wrong. That is true. But let me give you. So let's. So on fires, for example, um, this is an issue I've sort of been working on for a number of years. But after uh, last year and this year's fire, um, fires, uh, a bunch of people up here in Tahoe and in the Western States, we've all sort of gotten together and we're pooling our resources and we're building a venture fund aimed at cutting end technologies in the forest health and fire space and really going head on at this. And there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of people working together. And what's interesting, and here's what I do like, because I everything you're saying is true and I agree with it. But on the other side of the coin is I'm going to, I'm walking into rooms also discussing environmental issues, getting to use words like mega linkages out loud and, 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 and things like that. And everybody knows what I'm talking about. And there's a lot of people in these rooms. I've been in these rooms for a lot of years since the early, you know, 90s. And there weren't, I mean, there were other environmentalists in the rooms, uh, but there was no, the mainstream wasn't in the room, regular business wasn't in the room. So there is, there's more of a conversation going on um, in the rooms. And I think online, there's less of a conversation going on. Hmm. That's, you know, a shame because the conversation online has the power to really do a whole, you know, we're, they're interesting rooms, but like when what's being talked about in the rooms goes everywhere and we can, you know, stop canceling each other and start, you know, problem solving together, that's where things get start to get really interesting to me. Yeah, and and this, this so, so, so again, do you think there's a way to, that this is going to reverse this, this sort of, you know, global stupidity, I, I keep calling it. And that sounds kind of rude. I'm not, again, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about SAT scores. I'm just talking about this extreme irrational lack of dialogue. I don't think about it as global. What I think about, I think about it in terms of kind of the neurochemistry of addiction and, yeah. uh, and the kind of psychology of loneliness and like basic kind of safety and security, like bowl, John, you know, Bowlby and Ainsworth and Mary and John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth early work on animal behavior. That's sort of what I, what I think about when I look at this and I, and I, what I've always said is there was this fear for years in the, uh, in the legalization of drug community, especially around legalizing marijuana, but other things as well that if we did that at any point, this was an ongoing discussion for, for decades, really, would we sacrifice a generation? Would you lose a generation who, you know, they had never had access to these so-called illegal drugs before and suddenly they all became super addicted. And there was a lot of concern around that, um, even in like the marijuana communities with a, with a drug that is, you know, not physically addictive, though it can be psychologically addictive. Um, 
there was a lot of talk about this. And it turns out none of those fears were real, but it turns out another really heavy drug, smartphones, cell phones, apps, right, got introduced into the world at roughly the same time we started legalizing marijuana. And while the legalization of drugs has actually been handled very gracefully and very well, and it hasn't produced this ridiculous spike in addiction and it's produced a lot of benefit, our freaking cell phone, you know what I mean? These things showed up. Nobody was prepared for dopamine addiction. And then imagine having, like when you get dopamine addiction coupled to COVID, so now stay at home, right? We've addicted to you to a neurochemical that shows up when we have social interactions with them online or in person and then cut people off from it with COVID. I think what we're seeing is addictive behavior at a scale we haven't seen before. And I think that's what we're sort of looking at. Yeah, I totally agree. And people have to address it. So one of my daughters is slightly on the spectrum. She goes to, she went to a transition sort of high school, a transitions high school, because it's, it's unsure where she goes after that. But what, but after that was over, she graduated last year. It was 24 seven. She was on her computer just in an online world, you know, streaming or Twitch and none of the, like I do this also, but I don't, I try not to do it 24 hours a day but she was 24 hours a day. So we um, sent her with her consent, of course, we sent her to a forestry program. She's like in Wyoming, working in Yellowstone National Park. And it's with a a group of about eight other kids that also are slightly on the spectrum and they are not allowed to use computers or phones. Once a month, she could call us, which is almost makes it seem like a military type of school, but I think she enjoys that part only once a month calling us. But but other than that, there's no phones, no computers, nothing. And she just has to work. In, they go camping. They went to Utah for a week doing something. And and it's really good for her. Like she's she's having a great time. And I think people can't do that now. Like people refuse to do it. They don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> oh, that's. I mean, it's, it's so funny to me because I spend so much of my life outdoors, outside, and unplugged and I spend so little time on social media or any, any, any of that. Like I, I don't use social media. Actually, I very, I've limited, I'm about 5% of my prior usage of social media. And sometimes days go by without me using my phone, but that's because I got burnt out on it. I got burnt out on human beings, <laughs> except for the ones that I'm closest to. And of course my podcast guests, you'll be the only non you and Jay are the only non-family members I will speak to today. Yeah, I, I mean, that's me, that's me normally, right? Like, I always say, if I don't work with you or ski with you, I don't know you, um, unless well, I'm well, married then, to you, right? How do you, how do you, so this is a question that I've always wondered, how do you develop friendships and what what's a friendship for you? Well, what's a close, how many close friends should you have? I don't know how many close friends anybody should have. I know that positive psychology really teaches us that a cup two, uh, and that, that number seems to be real, at least two kind of powerful, strong interpersonal relate connections are necessary for good psychological health. And, you know, I've got a lot of close friends and I, you know, I'm an introvert, but I also know the positive psychology. So for example, every day, you know, I will spend time with my wife but I, at the end of my workday, I try to call somebody, somebody I know and care about and love and just reach out and talk to them because my natural inclination is not to at all. That, that's a really good technique. 
I, I'm writing that down. Hold on. I do that every day. And it, it doesn't seem, people say, oh, that's not a technique. That's, I, everybody does that. But like, I don't do that. And that's a good idea. Call at well, least. There's a, so there's a really sound peak performance reason for doing this. So uh, we talk a little bit at the Flow Research Collective about what you could call the positive psychology basics or the peak performance basics. And this is like basically flow and peak performance. It's a high energy state. So you need to maintain energy levels, right, in the body to have regular access to flow. And what the science shows is that on the energy side of this equation, you know, obviously hydration matters, obviously nutrition matters, obviously getting seven, eight hours of sleep matters, but there's all social support actually, which, you know, founded Chris Peterson, who teaches at the University of Michigan, has famously said that you can sum up the past 30 years of positive psychology in a single phrase, which is other people matter. And... Huh. I think that phrase is true, except for extreme introverts. Other people matter to extreme introverts, not quite as much. But the point is we are very social creatures. What people don't realize, we know, sort of know this on a gross level, like you get in a fight with your uh, coworker, your spouse, your brother, your best friend, it exerts an energetic penalty. You're tired afterwards. You're exhausted. It's hard to focus, blah, 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 all that stuff. So we know that what we don't realize is that on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, when the brain... Uh, faces an issue. One of the things it wants to decide, something pops up, is this a challenge or is it a threat? And to make that decision, the brain asks a bunch of questions. And one of the questions it asks is, are you solving this by yourself? Hmm. If you're solving this thing by yourself, if you've got no posse around, if nobody loves you, and so if you solve it and you fall down, nobody's going to pick you up. If you don't have people to help you, this is a really serious issue. This could be a threat. Let's burn lots of energy to prepare for it. And it's exhausting. Um, and fear blocks all kinds of other peak performance uh, skills that are necessary. On the other hand, if you've got robust social network relationships, it doesn't mean you need tons of friends. It's just those two quality relationships I was talking about. Your brain goes, "Oh, well, this is a this is a hard problem, but you've got some, you got backup, you got posse, and they're smart. You're smart. Let's see what we can do." And suddenly, it's a challenge you can rise to, and that's a huge deal from a peak performance standpoint. So like going out of your way, whatever it is for you to actively maintain kind of a, a handful of robust social ties really matters. And it certainly, and it matters more and more as we grow older, because everything we're learning about peak performance aging and longevity and, you know, positive psychology into our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond demands that same kind of social support. This is a great segue because the first time we talked about flow was, I believe it was your book, A Rise of Superman. You talked about flow in extreme sports. So these people who who climb mountains without, you know, what do you, whatever you call them, ropes, and then they ha slip, they, get, they, they act faster than they think because they're in this extreme sports kind of state of flow, this physical state of flow. Then uh, the next book, I think it was um, Stealing Fire, or uh, uh, we talked about flow, you know, in the, for mental peak performance. And now I have a very specific thing, like a high stakes mental situation, as do many people, whether it's a job interview or pitching a business or playing poker or some kind of mental competitive event, you need to be in a kind of state of flow or use these sort of techniques to, to have peak mental performance in, in a competitive situation. And that's what I want to ask you about. So can I ask you, and, and you have a course on this, Zero to Dangerous and Flow. Is that the name of the course? James, let me just stop you and back up and talk about where Zero to Dangerous comes from so you have an understanding about flow training. Because you have a very 
small perspective on 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 this based on a couple of books you've read. We uh, I think the Flow Research Collective at this point is the largest neuroscience-based peak performance research and training organization in the world. We're working in 44 countries. We're training 1,000 to 2,000 people a month. We, on the research side, we work with everybody from scientists at Stanford and USC and UCLA and so forth. And we study the neurobiology of peak human performance, so what's going on in the brain, in the body when we're performing our best. And then we use what we learned to train everybody. Yes, we do work with the US Special Forces, and yes, we work with the military, and yes, we work with professional athletes, but mostly we work with C-suite executives at Fortune 500 companies, and we work with whole companies. I think right now we're training up uh, executives from Audi, to everybody from like Audi to Accenture, I think, uh, are among the companies we're training up right now. And then we like work with mom and dad, and you know, like soccer moms in Indiana who want a more fulfilling life and, you know, insurance brokers in London and coders in Delhi and everybody you could possibly imagine in between. And why that matters and why you should care about any of this is these couple thousand people a month in 44 nations give us enormous data sets on what works, what doesn't. And the whole point is that all this stuff is astoundingly trainable. We measure flow pre and post all of our trainings using the standard psychological instruments, um, that, uh, that have been around for a very long time, and we're seeing a 70 to 80% boost in flow. It's not entirely sustainable. There's other peak performance elements you have to do. This is sort of what my book, The Art of Impossible, is about. There's a motivational uh, the component. There's a learning component. There's a creativity component. But we, have, we are starting to understand kind of what, you know, peak performance demystified is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. We now know from a scientific point of view that that biology, especially on the cognitive side, is a limited set of tools. There's a bunch of motivation tools that get you into the game, learning tools that help you continue to play, creativity tools that create a problem solving that help you steer, and flow, which is optimal performance, that helps you turbos the results beyond all expectations. That's the full peak performance Sweet, like that's that's everything. That's all of our biology. Now, what we've learned recently, we, the whole field, studies this stuff, is that, oh, wow, this stuff is designed to work in a certain order, in a certain way. And it's not that you can't do it out of order your own way, but it's just that if you do it in the order sort of it evolved to come online, you just get a lot farther, a lot faster, with a lot less fuss. So that's what we're doing in Zero to Dangerous. We mean it. So the training is called Z to D, Zero to Dangerous, and we will take pretty much anybody from zero to dangerous. That's the point of that. Well, that's perfect. It's exactly why I want to talk to you today because I really need to boost flow. And so can I tell you my situation? And then I, I see the course. Uh, maybe you could give me, you, it, it almost serves as an intro for people to the course to see what advice you give me. Okay. Even though I know it won't cover the whole thing. Okay, let's do it. So I've always been in situations where some degree of flow is required to be successful. Like let's say computer programming. Unless sure. you hit like a flow state while you're programming, it's going to be 10 times as long. Comedy, writing, podcasting, it, writing, ever like stock so, picking. Right. Every, so uh, Most of the things you do actually, like child rearing. I think I kind of gear my life around that. So when I was a nerdy kid and no girlfriends and needed to no computer programming yet. And, and I, I ended up being a very good chess player for my age. And, you know, I was a chess master. I was New Jersey junior champion that the whole, like in so my, in my small pond. When you pond, and Josh Waits can square off, who wins? 
I've never played him, and he was much better than I was, but he hasn't played in a long time, so I don't know. I have no idea. My assumption is he would he would win, but I think it would it would probably be close. But now, 24 years after my last tournament, I stopped playing when I was young. 24 years after my last tournament, I've started playing again, and I'm starting just now to play in tournaments again, which means, as opposed to playing online, which uh. is just blitz chess and it's online and nobody gives a shit or whatever, playing in a tournament is a, is a five-hour event. It's very intense. It's very, it's a lot different than the 24 years of just playing blitz. So while the entire world has grown up and adjusted to new skills and techniques and so on, I've just kind of languished. And on top of that, I, have, I no longer have the mindset for a five-hour game or 10 five-hour games in a row. And I need to prepare. I realize okay, I need so to prepare kind of more cool than chess. Problem. You know that like Bobby Fischer, I'm going to get this wrong because I'm going to do the number wrong, but he used to lose like seven to 12 pounds playing during a chess match, like an all day chess yeah. match. He would like the amount of mental, like the amount of calories you're burning during a chess tournament. Um, he would lose weight playing chess. Massive yeah. Mag Magnus Carlson, uh, who is the current world champion. He's the current Bobby Fischer. He, uh, burns 6,000 calories a day during a chess tournament. Yes. Okay. That, I knew the number was ridiculous. Thank you for knowing it. So I think it doesn't go along with any of my habits. Like I do intermittent fasting, for instance, and so I did play in one tournament and I literally ate every, I ate for, uh, 10 meals in a row, Joe and the juice sandwiches, like these little kind of vegan avocado sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I, one thing I don't care. This is something my, my wife, cause I weigh 140 pounds soaking wet, 145 soaking wet. And I eat all the time, but uh -huh. I also either am being an athlete all the time, or I'm writing all the time and being creative all the time and both burn massive amounts of calories. And I don't, uh, I, yeah, fasting I could never do because I burn, I burn too much fuel. So I don't, that said, uh, Rian Doris, CEO of the Flow Research Collective, he's been fasting for years. He uses, you know, a shit ton of brain power, works incredibly hard and it works for him. So I think with fasting, with food on that particular one, everybody's a little individual, but I'm more like you. Like when I'm, I, I, I just need fuel. And so, so I'm thinking like, what should I do kind of in the weeks up to the next tournament I play in? And then specifically what during the tournament should I, to, to, for reaching flow? And I, and I try to do what I think is all the right things, or at least what I used to do before, but there's probably, as you say, there's new research, new technology. There's also the theory that older people can't get better at something, which has gone away in the past few years because they realize adults have neuroplasticity, more neuroplasticity than they thought. I just finished a book literally yesterday on peak performance aging. It'll be out in a year, but your brain goes through profound neurological changes in your fifties and you actually gain cognitive superpowers. This is, you get the two sides of your brain start to talk to each other completely for the first time in your life post 50, really happens post 60, 70, and 80. This unlocks whole new levels of intelligence. So your intelligence goes way up after 50. So does creativity. So does empathy. So does wisdom. These are measurable real things in the brain. They all soar. We get access to legitimate cognitive superpowers over 50. Um, we also, the, this is also new studies show that the brain over 50 will start to colonize unused real estate. 
So you'll huh. be facing intellectual challenges or creative challenges, or you'll do something like, hey, I'm going to start playing competitive chess again right now. And your brain will go, oh, cool. We're not, we haven't used that region in 50 years. So let's colonize it. So you gain access to more neuronal real estate over 50. So it's, yes, you were right, by the way. The old idea was we go into the ground and we just, we, and we rot, right? Like that was it. In fact, um, the godfather of, I call him the godfather of peak performance aging. He's really the godfather of, uh, geriatric psychiatry. His name is Gene Cohn. In 1973, he convinced, he had to, he basically, uh, he was a young grad student who just thought, hey, wait a minute, I think something else is going on. I don't think old age is what everybody thinks it is. And he wanted to study it. And there were no, he basically convinced the government to build a National Institute of Aging and spent huh. 30 oh, years that. running it and pioneered geriatric psychiatry. But geriatric psychiatry, when you gotta stop and ask yourself and be like, why did you pioneer geriatric psychiatry in the 1970s? Like it's the freaking 1970s. Why do we wait so long? Because literally nobody believed that you could do anything to help older people. Like literally once you're, you were in 50, at 50, like strength, stamina, all this shit is gonna decline and your mental health is gonna decline. And all we can do is make you alleviate your suffering a little bit. And that was the general thought. He, this guy came up with this, with this radical idea, successful aging. <laughs> I mean, and, but he, here's why I think people did, I, like, and I'm, I can't wait to hear what you have to say because I think the problem is, is that if you try to do things the way young people do them, you're going to fail. So if I try, if I sit down for a long tournament and try to do the things that I myself would do as a kid, which is I'm just going to calculate better than my opponent, or I'm going to just, um, I'm going to just memorize things better than my older opponent will. If I try to do that now, I can't do it. My, my memory isn't as good and my ability to calculate like 20 moves ahead is not as good as it when I don't when believe I was that. I, Twenty years I, I old. Yeah, I don't believe that at all. Um, there's okay. there's no unless you've done so many drugs that you've done neurological no. damage to yourself along <laughs> no. the way, right? No, like literally, there's nothing that says that is true. What is true is you're very out of practice, and I would also say you are probably so much more susceptible to distraction now than you were then because there's so many, right. we, like we've trained ourselves to become susceptible to distraction over the past 20 years with technology. And it, so I would, I would argue that you were a little out of shape from a mental yeah. calculation, long focus thing, like mentally out of shape for that. Um, and I mean, of course you are. That's a very specific, how do you focus on chess and think 20 moves ahead for five hours? You know what I mean? That's a very specific brain skill. Um, but I would bet, if you, I mean, right now you've got a very fixed mindset. I can't do this. I'm too old. This yeah, you're thing, right. right. I have a fixed mindset. If, if I, if, but I, I, if you can get out of your fixed mindset, um, I don't think that's true. And I think the more flow you get playing chess, because flow is a, is a focusing skill and it feels so damn good. It tends to, you know, flow is how you focus for five hours at a time. So really, right. You don't want to try to, I mean, you could do it without flow it's not the most pleasant experience you're going to have. And you will have those days and those games and things like that. But, you know, when you have to focus on a situation that's crucial and high stakes for a long period of time, flow is your ally. Right. And, and it's funny what you say about older people and the kind of intelligence that older people grow. Like, I do feel it's weird. I feel like I have a much deeper understanding of the game. That was phenomenal to me.
Systems thinking increases. So does our ability to see things from multiple perspectives. So you start to be able to see around problems, right? Um, black and white thinking tends to go away. You know, it's neither, mm. it's, it's both and not either or usually as you, as you get older, these things happen. So for sure, from a system standpoint, that's really fascinating. Yeah. You're going to, you'll start to see things that you haven't seen before and, and, you know, hopefully done right. I would argue if you train up these skills, right, you'll probably get the calculation skills of your youth back and you're going to get a whole bunch of kind of systems level macroscopic perspective on chess um, that is impossible when you're younger because our brains haven't, like they haven't gone through the gateways. There's also a bunch of uh, genes and it's an epigenetic effect that don't get, they get turned on by experience. So there's like genes for intelligence and wisdom and empathy and things like that that can't we can't have access to in our early twenties because they get they're meant to get turned on chronologically. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But... It was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long. And both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. 
And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Okay, for optimal flow performance now, how should I start thinking? Like before tournament, during tournament, and maybe even post-tournament. Basically, I'm, I'm planning on playing one a month over the next year and proving that people are wrong about adult improvement. Well, I mean, let's start with the peak performance basics. Are you maintaining good nutrition? And I'm talking about like all the time. This is So the one thing that is true about peak performance is there's no... If you really want to do this, once a month is a lot. So like, this has got to be an everyday thing. So first of all, let's start with the obvious. Hydration, nutrition. I could probably hydrate more. Seven to eight hours of sleep a night. All of that I do. Although during the tournament, I feel so wired up, I can't sleep. Yeah, I, I, that's my problem as an introvert. That's my problem around people. I'm not around. So I, I, I tend to produce a lot of like norepinephrine or dopamine or both. And I can't, I, when you put me around people and I lose my ability to sleep, I have that problem. Nutrition, I think I'm, I'm oh, good. Oh, yeah, I would assume you're, I would, I, you know, I would kind of assume you were good on that stuff. Um, do, are you, you know, you're doing the, the stuff you need to do to train up focus, like you've got a regular mindfulness practice. And, and I, I put in the time studying the game. I have a, a, a coach and all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're doing yeah. all the chess stuff. I'm just looking at, like, I'm looking at some of the stuff that around, are you doing daily gratitude work? I definitely am doing a daily mindfulness practice, which... To people, sometimes people confuse that with, I think people, the, the word meditation is a very heavy word and people, there's a lot of different Yeah, what I'm saying is definitions. are you focusing on your breath or something that's like, was single point attention um, or open yes. senses meditation? It, like that, like what I care about is my, any of these practices focused at flow follows focus, right? It can only happen when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So there's, you know, we, we know, for example, work we've done with uh, Dr. Glenn Fox at USC 
shows, for example, people with regular gratitude practices have high, have more flow. They're flow pro. So you're okay, asking, I, I do right, not do a daily we, gratitude we, practice. And I can, we could, you know, if you go into the, the art of impossible, the new book, all this, I'm not going to waste our time going deep into the science of why, but all, there's a lot of really cool science around what gratitude does to the brain and why gratitude works and affirmations don't work um, at all. And you know what I mean? So there's, there's a bunch yeah. of really good stuff there that you can rely on. But I always tell people, for example, there's three ways to tune up your nervous system. You can gratitude practice, mindfulness practice, or exercise. And if you're working on exercise for kind of like lowering anxiety, it's roughly like 20 to 40 minutes of exercise. You want to exercise until it's quiet upstairs and your lungs open up. When your lungs open up, it's a signal your brain has released nitric oxide into your system and it flushes stress hormones out of your system. So if you're looking, and I always tell people under normal circumstances, if you're not stressed or you're not in training, right, do one a day. Right. If you worked for the Flow Research Collective during COVID, right, I have a staff that I, you know, I demand a lot of, and uh, they demand a lot of themselves, and we're a peak performance organization. And I, if you wanted to work at the company during COVID, you had to do all three every day. And okay. Because right, because it was super stressful, and you know, I like I couldn't have people burning out or not getting into flow or whatever, especially if they're like interfacing with clients who are burning out and not getting into flow and freaking out, right? It's, it's no good if people on both ends of the phone are like freaking out. So um, I would uh, I would double down on tuning up your nervous system. I might also double down a little bit. I'd like extend out your mindfulness a little bit more because while well, 11 minutes a day is all you need for like emotional regulation and lowering your stress response and things like that, if you can really sort of like, you know, if you, I don't know if you've ever done periods where you're, you know, meditating 20 minutes or 30 minutes and you get that like real detachment from your emotions. I've gone through periods of two hours a day. I don't, I do about 30 minutes now, 30 minutes. I, what, I, what I would tell you to do is just like, make sure you're detached enough from your emotions to see if you can get more sleep during the tournaments. That's right. I'm, that's what I'm wondering is, could you pull back a little bit more or could you bring meditation into the tournaments in lieu of sleep. I see. Right. Something like that to at least like change your state. Or, you know, if you can, Yoga Nidra does this or uh, it's where you can essentially fall asleep. You just got to get your brain into alpha. You don't have to fall all the way asleep. You can reset a lot of things if you can sort of get your brain down in, into an alpha state. Yoga Nidra, Andrew Huberman at Stanford talks a lot about Yoga Nidra and he, he do it using it for that. Um, I've just got very good at like sort of training myself to, you know, if I lie down for a nap a couple minutes later, I can like let everything go for 20 minutes and just drift into alpha, even if I don't fall asleep. Learning how to do some of that stuff might be useful also. Yeah. Just to, just cause more sleep is, is just going to help. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And flow wise, you know, like you're training chess, you know what I mean? Like you want to train the challenge skills balance. There's, I mean, there's, I think, you know, it's interesting because I think in a sense, like complexity is a flow trigger. You, that's sort of unpredictability is a flow trigger. Novelty is a flow trigger. Those are all sort of baked into what you're doing. Like this is a high flow activity. Um, and if it's tournament chess, there's a little bit more risk. There's some social risk as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't, I mean, you, you're very good because you don't take yourself super seriously. Um, 
So there's maybe a little less of that than there might be, but you know, there's social risk. So there's a bunch of like really good flow triggers baked in. Um, I don't love competition in general. I like, I can, there's certain arenas I love to compete in. There's certain arenas I don't like to compete in. But you do, you've seen, you've been involved in the extreme sports world. I think of chess as almost like extreme mental yeah, sports. But, no, I, I, it is, but I'm not ever involved in the competitive. I mean, I, you know, I think competitive, I've never competed in it, in an extra sport event in my, in my life. Cause I don't like, I like to be the one who pushes myself and decides how far. And I feel like in a competitive environment, other people are making those choices for me. If you want to win. Right. It, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not wired that way. I'm, I'm impressed when people are wired that way. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I always feel like in, in a competitive environment, like it, now don't talk to me about writing where I'm ferociously competitive and insane, right? Or flow research. People don't realize writing is a competitive oh, sport God, also. A, yeah, it's a super, I always tell people, you know, in flow for writers, the the, the course that I, that I teach on this stuff, I always remind people, um, and actually this isn't art impossible, it was something my buddy Burke Sharpless said to me, he's a screenwriter. And he's a big screenwriter. He writes, you know, $150 million action movies kind of thing. Um, I think he's writing all three of Sony's current Spider-Man movies. Wow. And um, he says, look, man, for every one of me, there's like 10,000 people chasing me. They all want right. my job. They've all got like almost my level of connections. And a lot of them have my talent, right? Like every time I write a script, the studio says no to thousands of other scripts. And I used to think about that as a magazine journalist. Like I would turn in, a, I would get an assignment from like a New York Times Sunday magazine, for example, or a Wired. They would turn down 500 to 1,000 other journalists that month. And these were men and women who were, they were certainly at my, you know what I mean? They were right there with me. They were enormously talented kind of thing. And, you know, all of it's always, and novels are, novels and, and not nonfiction books are even more competitive, right? Less than yeah. 5% of authors make residuals. No, it's true. If, if they're choosing to read your book, they're, they're choosing not to read someone else's. Totally. It's, it's, it's uh, by definition. And, it's and, by, and by the way, you should choose to read my book and not anybody else's. I just, it's a better choice. I, I, I always do, which is why I've, I've had you on the pot. You've probably been on the podcast. You, you definitely, been on more than anyone else. I think I you're hold, like seven I times this, now. I hold this record on a bunch of different podcasts and it's just sort of accidental. It's because guys like you do this. You're like, oh yeah, I think I need some chess help. So I'm going to call Steven and we're going to do a podcast together. Yes. So, okay. So the mindfulness, I'll up the game. Gratitude. I don't usually do that. Uh, I think, uh, but yeah, I don't know do why it, I don't do try that. It, do it. Try it first thing in the morning. You'll find... Um, it resets the nervous system. It's just a very powerful, and the, the, maybe we'll talk a little about the science of gratitude and how it works because it's cool. So, you know, we evolved sort of in, in this era of immediacy where threats were like tiger in the bush, right? So the brain is um, where you can't miss those threats, right? You miss the tiger in a bush, you, you're dead. So the brain is biased. We have what's known as a negativity bias. And what that really means is we take in about nine bits of negative information for every positive bit that gets through. If you have a regular gratitude practice, that shifts, becomes like six to one, five to one. So one, this helps on an optimism, positivity, happiness level. Um, and you get you have a little less fear and, and all that stuff. But you have to remember 
the bandwidth of consciousness is really limited, right? We get the conscious mind takes in um, about 11 billion bits of information coming through our senses every second. Consciousness is about 2,000 bits. And what you can pay attention to, the contents of consciousness that you're actually awake and aware of, a couple hundred bits. And if it's a nine-to-one ratio of negative to positive, we're mostly getting negative stuff. The difficulty is, for example, for chess, where strategy requires creativity. So creativity requires you to notice novelty and other things, new things in the environment or things in the environment that will trigger old thoughts and things along those lines. If only you're only taking a negative bits of information, nine to one, you're not getting at the, the kind of the stuff you need to create creative problem-solving solutions. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating because you become too reactive to what the other person's doing. You're just crowding out the information. The other thing is um, with that fear, so the anterior cingulate cortex, which is part of your brain, it does a bunch of really cool stuff. One of the things it does, and it does this based on how much or how little, mostly norepinephrine is your system. Norepinephrine is curiosity when you have a little bit of it, is anxiety when you have too much, right? And it decides if there's too much fear in your system, this is why you got to main, this is why you want to calm down on a daily basis. It, your brain wants to be logical and linear. It says, okay, shit's going down. Let's be tried, true, safe. Give me something that has worked every time. It doesn't want to be wildly creative, totally divergent, outside the box, novel solutions to problems. And so when, with a gratitude practice, it calms the anterior cingulate cortex down and allows us to find farther flung solutions to problems. Now, this is good for two reasons. One, it's from a strategy you play chess point of view, this really matters. But two, pattern recognition, when we link ideas together, that's a flow trigger, right? It produces a tiny squirt of dopamine. And that dopamine drives focus and eventually will drive flow or can start to drive flow. So by not tuning up our nervous system on a daily basis, by not staying calm with gratitude practices and things like this, we're paying big penalties on anxiety, on performance. The other thing is too much anxiety blocks learning. So even if you're doing all this chess work, if you're studying and everything else, if, you, if you've got too much anxiety along the way, a little bit is great. It primes you for learning. Too much totally blocks learning. So you're costing yourself, you know, you're, you're slowing your journey as well. All right, that's great. So I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna gear up a gratitude practice and- It's and, five and, minutes, man. Write three yeah. things that you're grateful for and turn one into a paragraph where I like to write, I write 10 things I'm grateful for. And I try, the thing you wanna do is just, you wanna feel the gratitude. And the reason you wanna feel the gratitude is, so this is why gratitude works and affirmations don't work your brain has a fantastic built-in bullshit detector, right? I always huh. say, if like, if you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, and you work at Walmart, your brain is looking back at you going, shut the fuck up, man, you work at Walmart. Yeah. You're not a millionaire. And that is incredibly demotivating. It destroys motivation. But if you say, if you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm happy and grateful that I woke up this morning and my legs moved and I could go for a walk in the sunshine, well, that shit happened, and that's a good thing. And your brain goes, oh, yeah, 
you did wake up healthy. Your legs did work and it is sunny outside. Maybe the world isn't so scary after all. So we don't have to take in nine negative bits of information. Maybe we can take in seven and still keep your ass safe. That's what's going on, right? That's why affirmations don't work. That's why gratitude works. And But it feeds so many other things. In fact, we're doing, uh, I shouldn't talk about this. Maybe I can tell you a little bit about it. So we've got this really cool study. We teamed up with Kelly Slater's Wave Pool. Um, and uh, we've been wanting to do, so with the our friends from USC, we've been wanting to figure out, can you use gratitude in crisis situations as an intervention that will help with flow? Like example, you're playing chess, right? I'm telling you to use a daily gratitude practice, but could you use it between moves in your head? Would it be? Right, that's an you, interesting right? question. So can that, I and, tactically and we, use and it? And we don't, so we don't know, but we were going to do this last year at Kirkwood with skiers and we're not going to do it with skiers. We're going to instead do it with surfers and we're going to test surfers where one, one group is going to get use gratitude between the waves. Um, one group is going to use like a sham practice, um, where they like look around and notice details in the environment, but it isn't. And then blah, blah, blah. One group will probably use a breath work, just like a mindfulness. And we want to test them against each other and see which, which is the most effective, you know, in critical threshold situations. So we don't know yet, but we will hopefully within six months or so, um, if gratitude isn't like an acute intervention. I think a gratitude is sort of like a radical form of, of cognitive reframing, right? There's 50 years of research that says cognitive reframing is a phenomenal tool um, for all sorts of stuff. And I just think gratitude is a, because it's, you're grateful for things that are real, that happened already. It's just a very powerful form of cognitive reframing. If that makes any sense. It's fascinating because it could be why kids tend to have some of these abilities. It's not that they're, it's not that they're grateful. It's that they have nothing to be not grateful about in many cases. So they're not, they're not old and bitter. They haven't paid taxes yet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, David. I got to tell you, I was so angry as a kid and as a teenager. Um, I am so much less angry and bitter than I now than I was. A, I'm an old school punk rocker from Cleveland. How angry do you think I was? Oh well, I could I could see you as a punk rocker. I I believe it. <laughs> I had the weird four color sideways mohawk for a while. You, you have to share pictures with that. No, I, we don't. We don't. We don't get those pictures very often. So, all right. So, so okay. So, in terms of prep, increasing, you know, keep keep yeah, the I mean, nutrition James, going. I, like I would tell you to. I mean, probably more cardio. We've than talked I do. about this stuff before. I mean, there's. I would first of all, I would train physically for all. Yeah. For all this. What stuff, would you right? What would you train physically with? Would you do muscle building or cardio? I would do both. I would focus more on uh, muscle building. And if you're going to train cardio, make sure you're doing it in an outdoor environment where you're getting sort of novel exposure um, to it. You want to like, one of the things to strengthen our brains as we get older is you want neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons. This is how we stave off cognitive decline and dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that. What most people don't realize is most uh, neurons, new neurons are birthed in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a part of the brain that does, uh, memory, but it also does map making. It's filled with place cells and grid cells. It, it's, we're hunter gatherers. So like remembering locations, 
right? right? The brain is basically designed to remember emotionally charged things that happened in specific locations. Where was the good watering hole? Where was the saber-toothed tiger that I got to run away from? Where is the ripe fruit tree? Where is the good trout stream? As we're like moving from location to location, that's what we're designed to remember. So if you want to strengthen the brain, this is why brain games don't work. Right, cognitive, like they all this hype about online app brain games and train your it's all bullshit. Mm. Get out into the natural world and have emotionally charged experiences in nature. What your daughter is doing right now, that's how we birth new neurons. Um, Fascinating. which by okay. the way, tells you something that action sports are uh neuroprotective because they take place there. Emo- you have emotionally charged experiences in novel outdoor environments throughout action sports, which makes them neuroprotective against cognitive decline, which I think is really unusual. But you can do this from straight, like hiking in the outdoors will do this too. Um, you don't have to go kiting if you don't want to. But uh, So, okay, so I, what about but during? And, and oh, strength training, by the way, in strength training, so there's, this is a, I wish I knew, uh, so I am not an expert in the stuff I'm about to start blabbing about. Um, though I've been poking at it a while, but there are a lot of people who are a lot smarter than about it. But there's all kinds of new cool research that shows, for example, for intellectual creative challenges, strength. So all, uh, there's a very tight correlation between brain and body, right? And strength training boosts intelligence um, in really interesting ways, more than aerobic activity does. And we don't, yet know why. In fact, I'll tell you, here's something crazy. Do you know what the number one correlate for longevity and healthy aging is? What? The number one most important factor, strong legs. Strong That's so legs. interesting. I didn't strong, know that. Strong legs. I was going to say sleep. No, it's strong legs. And it's and not is it just physically protective. It also keeps us mobile, so it allows us to be more social. But most importantly, it's neuroprotective against dementia. Strong legs correlate very much to healthier minds, less dementia, less Alzheimer's, less cognitive decline, um, et cetera, et cetera. Why is that? Why um, strong legs? They don't know exactly. I mean, they, there's a bunch of hypotheses around, but the, and they don't really know. That's what I mean. Like when I say like this stuff is really new, the peak performance aging is a brand new field at, in a sense, like the brain stuff I was talking about, uh, uh, Gene Cohn's work, Geriatric psychiatry dates back to the 70s, but the research I was talking about didn't really start showing up until the early 2000s. So all this stuff is literally like less than 10 years old in terms of our learning about it, really. And I don't, like I'm hesitant to say, I don't think we know anything for sure. Like I've got a book coming out on it, but it's a giant experiment in peak performance aging because I'm not 100% certain what we can say for sure but there's a ton of data and it's just the perfect time to run an experiment. So I did. This is interesting. I don't know if it's related, but apparently they've discovered the best indicator that your golf is going to improve if you're a golf player, which I'm not, but the best indicator that your golf play is going to improve is stronger legs. And I wonder if that's, oh, that's connected somehow. Interesting. That's interesting. I mean, some of it is, for example, like the number one killer of, Anybody over 50, like if you're not going to, if car, if heart problems aren't going to kill you and cancer isn't going to kill you, chances are you're going to die because you fell down, broke a bone and got a secondary infection when that bone was healing like pneumonia. And that's, what's going to kill you. That's pretty much outside of heart disease and cancer. That's the largest killer in older adults. 
It's these secondary wow. infections caused by. So when you train up leg strength, we also see balance also gets trained up. Leg strength gets trained up. And the cool thing about this is most people don't realize this is everybody hears, oh, we're fast twitch mobility, oh, fast twitch muscle response declines with age. Uh, so does strength, stamina, flexibility, blah, blah, blah. Every single one of these categories, yes, they decline with age, but only if you're not using it. These are all use it or lose it skills. If you're constantly training these skills, there's new studies that say even in old age, we're talking like post 90, post 100, you can maintain 70 to 80% of your physical skills. And because the brain figures out how to compensate for some of what is lost, you can actually perform as if you've retained more than that. So it's peak performance much later in life Totally. You know what I mean? Like a lot of this stuff, a lot of these old ideas are going away. This isn't what you call to talk about. This isn't chess related, but I'm a little. No, no, it has the peak performance in general, because look, mental extreme sports are also include an entrepreneur raising totally. funds, a, yeah. a, a guy applying for a job and nervous in the interview, a writer. So, you know, many, many of the listeners, you know, plus many of the guests are all engaged in mental extreme sports of some sort or other. I'm just in this kind of like going into this environment that's like X sports, uh, you know, X mental sports in these high uh, stakes situations, these tournaments. And so, so I'm curious during the tournament itself, what do you think? How do you think I should? Um, and, and it's the same if I'm going in for a job interview or going to raise money. Well, you know, so I'm not going to break this down for you because I've done it too many times for, uh, 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 and it's in the art of impossible, but you need to understand how the flow cycle, right? Flow isn't a light switch. It's not a binary. It's not in the zone, out of the zone. It's a four stage process. There's a struggle phase. There's a release phase. There's the flow state itself. There's recovery on the back end. So you have to understand how to, where you are, locate yourself in the cycle. Where are you? And know how to move through it. Recovery is also, you know, huge. Are, do you have an active recovery protocol? Are you doing daily Epsom salt baths or saunas? Are you using restorative yoga? Are you going for long walks? What's your, you know, do you use anti-inflammatory supplement? You know what I mean? Like we go on and on and on on that stuff. Um, but recovery really, really matters, especially if you're, you know, in that kind of tournament environment you're putting yourself in. Yeah, I think I didn't do that in my. I played in one, and I think I didn't do the recovery at all. Yeah, that'll that 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 not ideal. So and 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 by the way, it matters. I'm not just talking about the tournament. I'm really talking about like every day. If you're study, if you're really working your butt off, and you're burning a lot of calories studying chess along the way, you should be recovering on a daily basis. We you know, in all of our studies. We found that if people have regular access to flow in their kind of highest flow activity, the thing that, you know, something they'd love to do, if they have an active recovery protocol in place, if they start each day with a clear goals list, like a specifically crafted to-do list, um, it's uh, pretty damn hard to burn out, mm. right? In, so especially in these times of of COVID and stress. And we were earlier talking about how you, we think there's a plague of stupidity going on. Um, and, and certainly whether or not there's a plague of stupidity going on, uh, it, it, it is a stressful time. If you think there, you know what I mean? Like it's a high stress time for everybody. Um, I don't know anybody right now who's not sort of going through it. Even if you're rising to the challenge, you're still going through it right now. 
and we have been for a while. So I think the whole, we're all, this is also one of the reasons I think there's so much animosity online uh, right now is we're burned out and burnout as a, as a society, as a, as a globe, mm. we're sort of burned out and right. burnout has specific, I mean, it's a, it's a condition, right? Like it's, it's a medical condition. It's in, it's in the DSM and there's a physical side to it and there's a mental side to it. And part of the mental side, paranoia is a symptom of burnout, exhaustion, irritability, anger, um, defensiveness, jumping to extreme, all these, these are vigilance. These are all signs of burnout. And when I look at what's going on, like online behavior, some of it, I'm like, I think this is just a world that's just burned out and, you know, is hyper reactive and hyper vigilant right now. And that's what that looks like to me. The good news is burnout's really remarkably easy to, to you got to work at it to get rid of it, but it's, it's easy to get, fix. It sounds like doing all these things, whether it's gratitude practice, mindfulness, cardio, yeah, you want the daily exercise, daily gratitude practice, daily mindfulness practice. You want to have an active recovery protocol in place. So active recovery is like not TV and a beer. Alcohol is bad for recovery because of what it does for your system. And television actually blocks recovery because it, it keeps kicking your brain up into beta. Even though we don't feel it, we feel like we're vegged out. But the brain, every time there's a fast cut on TV, your brain jumps up to beta, high beta, which is like awake and alert. Because when mm -hmm. things move very quickly, the brain thinks predator, something's going to eat me, right? And even if it happens unconsciously, it doesn't allow us to relax. So TV, like whether or not, I'm not, no judgment. I like, I like my television too. You know what I mean? But like, it's not a recovery protocol. You need uh, Epsom salt bath, a sauna, restorative yoga, blah, 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 that sort of stuff. Um, and then regular access to flow. This is really counterintuitive. But as we move into flow, flushes all the stress hormones out of our system and it reboots us with like these feel good performance enhancing neurochemicals. So that's amazing. It sort of resets the nervous system back to zero. So if we are hypervigilant, if we are burned out, this, you know, takes care of it. Um, more importantly, flows like a focusing skill. So I go skiing, right? Almost guaranteed flow state for me on Monday. It's training my brain how to focus. So I go to work on Tuesday I'm going to get more flow. You want more flow playing chess, go do something that you know produces a lot of flow for you, like comedy, right? Another thing you, that you like to do that you can't really do well without flow, as you know. You're cross-training when you're doing that. You're training the brain to drop into flow in high-stress situations, right? So you can cross-train that kind of focus as well. Okay, so, so the question is, is cross-training actually critical? Because... Obviously, you can't do one activity all the time. You should always have, there's, you should have some regular access to flow in something that is outside. Like right now, you're, a lot of focus is going to chess. So you want something that's not chess, that's just producing a lot of flow in your life because um, there's, there's that cross-training element. It resets the nervous system it, and it, you know, a bunch of other things that are useful as as a way of prepping for your tournament. I'm not saying spend a lot of time on it. I'm spending like, you know, a couple hours a week. So that happens to you, uh, kind of thing. Um, and by the way, you're trying to play a tournament a month. So don't take my word for it. Run the damn experiment. Try one yeah. month. You know what I mean? Try comedy and blah, 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 see if cross-training works. One month, if it doesn't, call me up and tell me what happened because I want to know. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I I'm don't, curious too. And the other thing is this, 
you know, when it comes to cross training and flow and things like that, we know that regular access to flow is super important, but, um, I am not sure how much individual differences matter here, right? There's like, there's a nature nurture component that could exist with, with this kind of cognitive cross training. Um, so it might work for certain individuals in certain situations more than other individuals in other situations. And I don't, I don't necessarily know if uh, we know enough or if I've, I've never, if somebody's doing that research, I've never heard of it or met them. Like it might be out there, but I don't know where it is, but I sure would like it. I just remember as, as a kid before a tournament, I would always read biographies completely unrelated. And then in between rounds, I would, like, I remember one time I was obsessed with reading biographies of music composers and I would just really enjoy that even in between rounds. And, you know, it was, this kind of really got me in, you know, absorbed into something else. So I wasn't wired up by the game I had just played or nervous about the game I was about to play. I think that's a really good idea to have that kind of ritualized reset built in between the games, whatever it is. I think that's really smart. So this has been great advice. And then I'm going to try the doing gratitude in between moves. I'm curious how tactically that could be used yeah, would, almost I mean, as, a, as a flow I, I, weapon. I would also play with different cognitive, you know what I mean? Cognitive framing techniques also. Gratitude, start with gratitude, but if it works, you know, you could try, we, could, you, we play with some other cognitive framing, reframing stuff, interestingly, but I'd like to, uh, let me know again on, on the gratitude thing. We could, you know, what's interesting is, I didn't think about this, but it would be remarkably easy to sort of run a double blind gratitude chess study. You know what I mean? You just need a friendly tournament. Can't be, you know, the New York City regionals or something like that. But if you organized a friendly tournament, half the people use gratitude in between moves and the other, you know what I mean? Just measure flow and quality of gameplay, who won, who lost. There's probably really cool data to come out of that. So at yeah. some point, if we want to do a chess gratitude, like this is a cool study, I'm in. Yeah, all right. Because you could even do it It'd be interesting to even see how it works. You with can do it online. Faster chess. Yeah. Oh, you can do it online. Yeah. I don't like. I don't even think we have to do it in public. I think you can just get a bunch of people together online to you know play it that way. And the great thing with chess is everybody is statistically ranked, so you have a ranking that is as close to possible as your ability. So you could see statistically, literally, how performance improves or declines based on certain you know what what someone does. It's interesting because one of the things that like you know, we, that we always point out is, you know, flow, you feel like Superman or Superwoman, but it doesn't mean always mean, and this, they point this out, you know, you could go out and uh, play basketball, have a very flowy experience in it, man, you feel like Michael Jordan. You don't look like Michael Jordan, right? Like you look like you maybe playing a slightly better game of basketball than normal, but you don't like, it's, there's a huge break between how good you feel and yes flow massively improves performance it does but it doesn't like it doesn't turn like i don't become michael jordan in flow when i play basketball you know what i mean and um or i you know this year the experiment i ran in peak performance aging was i tried to learn how to uh park ski at age 54 which is how old i am and it, there's all these reasons why it's supposed to be impossible for anybody over the age of 30 to like even become an intermediate park skier let alone get better than that and uh, there were days I would feel like I, I man, I'm flying off the jumps. I'm hitting the rails. I'm looking great. And then we'd like sit out for video review afterwards. 
And I'd be like, oh my God, it certainly doesn't like, I mean, I'm doing shit that was above the level I was at before. You know what I mean? So there's progress and that's what you ultimately want. But there's a difference between how, how good it feels on the inside and what the video review reveals. Yeah, I'm sure. So the, the, you know, there's also biases like the Dunning-Kruger bias too, which, which I think is a good bias that people have. Like it keeps them persistent while they might not be so good. They get to think that they're Michael Jordan. Yeah, totally. No, no, it's a, it's, I, I, I don't, um, the, I like that bias because like we're essentially goal directed systems, right? So our biases are designed one way or another to help us achieve our goals. They cause us a lot of problems along the way too. And, um, you know, you, you got to actively kind of pay attention and work on this stuff, but they're, you know, I'm a very ambition goal directed kind of person. So I like some of them are, are, are useful in that way. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Well, look, Steven, I appreciated your, your advice and help. And if, if you think of anything else, give me a holler. And I want to remind people also, like, can anyone sign up for your course now? Zero to dangerous. Yeah. Zero to dangerous. And, uh, you also, um, the art of impossible is essentially, it's a how to playbook. So there's that. If you, if you want the course, cool. If, if you want I have it right here, the playbook. Art of the Impossible. That's oh, wait, no, not that's Art of Impossible. Book. That's Stephen Johnson's book. But he, Stephen's have... an awesome, awesome author. Art of the Impossible, I... right there. Okay, <laughs> I we you've been on the podcast with Art of the Impossible. That's true. I was right when that came out. Right. Yeah. 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 That, so, uh, but yes, anybody can take uh, Zero to Dangerous. Um, uh, FlowResearchCollective.com will get you there. So will ZeroToDangerous.com. Yeah. There you go. I like, I, 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 I'm, I'm happier with the Steven Johnson screw up like that, that his book might be better than my book. I don't, I don't know which one you grabbed, but he's good. I have not read this one yet. So that tells you the difference what, between oh, your what, book and his what, book. What, well, all right, cool. This is one that, is, is, is about new anti-aging. One? Yeah. It's a short history of living longer. So you oh, would probably like it. It's about anti-aging. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I don't know he, why. I didn't know. Why, he, what? I didn't know he worked on that. Yeah, he always has an interesting way of linking stories in such a way that it's almost like a puzzle. So I'm curious to to read this one. I think he, so. He gave a talk at the Long Now Foundation on the Long Zoom, which is a, a way of uh, sort of looking at problems that I think is one of the coolest, neatest. Oh my god! Like his books are amazing, but that talk really sort of like kicked my head sideways and made me think for a really long time because it's a really different way of sort of thinking about things. And I think he's a really keen mind. Yeah, no, he's, he's very smart. I, I enjoy his books. So, uh, so zero to dangerous, they could sign up for the art of the impossible. They could, they could buy and your next book. Read. On, on, or you can go to stephencollar.com or flowresearchcollective.com and just watch free videos until, you know, cows come home. And when your next book comes out in April, which you just finished, I have a novel coming out in, uh, April, another cyberpunk thriller follow-up to my last book, Last Tango in Cyberspace. The next one will probably be next fall or next winter, the peak performance aging book. When that comes out or even when the novel comes out, they can see you back on this podcast. So It could happen. So thanks again, Stephen. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Be good.
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.